0: Hello, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser with Dry Eye Coach, and today we're going to be continuing our Innovator Series, and I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Donald Korb. Dr. Korb leads Korb Associates of Private Practice. He's also head of Korb Research, and he's an affiliated clinical professor at the University of California Berkeley. Welcome, Dr. Korb. How are you doing today? I'm just doing fine. Thank you. Thank you, and the pleasure is ours for having you join us today. I'm going to be going through a series of questions, kind of talking about your research and development over the years in terms of meibomia gland dysfunction, and we really, again, appreciate you joining us. Let's start off by getting a really high-level overview, and I would love it if you could start by telling us about the history of your research on MGD.
1: Well, it's almost more of an odyssey, Dr. Hauser, than it is a history. Um, it's it's approaching 40 years, which is a long time, and I've been dedicated uh, more or less extensively and selectively to the area of meibomian glands and MGD. So it's been a long time. Um, you know, in thinking over how this all happened, uh, it happened because I'm a clinician. And as a clinician, after having invented uh, the CSI lens, which was the first membrane type of contact lens, perhaps the godfather of all modern contact lenses, uh, some people could just wear it forever, 24 hours a day indefinitely, and other people wore it very well for an hour, for two hours, for three hours, and then the lens became uncomfortable. And one could not figure out why that lens was uncomfortable, and making a duplicate lens, changing the parameters, would not alter the basic scenario of, of having initial comfort, which would gradually deteriorate over the course of time until the person's eyes began to tear, they felt scratchy, et cetera, et cetera. Symptoms that we all are familiar with. Well, in working with that problem, um, I discovered that the mybomian glands were not functioning properly, although they looked perfect. They looked just absolutely perfect, but they didn't function well. And how do we determine function? Well, we had to develop a metric, and the metric we developed in those days was rather simple. It was our thumb using mm-hmm. calibrated force, which we built an in instrument so we could calibrate and learn the amount of force to apply to a lower lid. Well, more or been... less.
0: More or less. What year was that
1: that you oh, were starting? Uh,
0: in fact, to... that was
1: in seventy eight, nineteen seventy eight. Okay. 90. Right. And and in nineteen in nineteen seventy nine, there was I I met a gentleman named Antonio Henriquez who was in his thirteenth or fourteenth year of fellowships post having become an ophthalmologist. So he had mm-hmm. a lot of training. He was both a ophthalmologist a, a a pathologist, a board-certified pathologist, an ocular pathologist, a Ph.D. in physiology, and on and on. And I met him at a meeting, and we got chatting, and he heard what I talked about. And all of a sudden, we started collaborating. And it was from that collaboration that we learned and published that, number one, the meibomian glands could be dysfunctional but not have significant inflammation or infection. And everyone mm-hmm. in those days believed, well, if you had, my, you had mybomitis, which meant you had an infection of the mybomia glands, although as we all know, IS could mean either inflammation or infection. Right. So working with Dr. Henriquez, uh, he developed the pathophysiology of the obstruction, uh, both by studying material which we expressed and also by biopsies. Um, and mm-hmm. we came to the conclusion, number one, that my mybomian gland obstruction was purely, purely a disease where the terminal duct became obstructed. So, so that was a big change in our thinking right then and there, Dr. Hauser, because we never imagined that. And so right. that was the first real point that, that, that we discovered. And that's still... That's still really accepted, and it's been accepted by all the authorities, by all the publications, and by all the conferences, uh, such as Tear Film and Ocular Society, Dues to the MGD Report. So we know now that it's a disease of obstruction, as many other diseases right. of the bodies uh, turn out to be diseases of obstruction. And we named it meibomian gland dysfunction because we wanted to be certain that people understood that the field understood that it was not a form of infection or inflammation which everyone mm-hmm. thought it was just the opposite it was pure obstruction so and we also wanted individuals to understand that that it was not obvious That you could look at a lid that the best people in the world could look at lids, and we had a great team of ophthalmologists who were pathologists in those days, and they could look at the lids, and they could not distinguish between a lid that was functional and not functional. Well, that resulted in the publication in 1980 of a paper uh, naming MGD, I forget the exact title, but I think it was Contact Lens Intolerance and MGD, followed by a second paper, which uh, minimize the contact lenses because we had discovered that it's more and more and more uh, the basis of dry eye. So, in summary, all of that came from an observation that individuals could not wear what we thought was a perfect contact lens. And for many people, it was a contact lens, and statistically, but you didn't even have to use the statistics. It was obvious that the problem... Hi was simply one of non-function. We didn't get lipid out of those glands on a normal basis.
0: And I think what you've described is what we see so often in research. You see a clinical problem and then you ask a question. And from that, you know, question of why something isn't working for a certain patient population, we, we get a lot of knowledge. And I think that you really tapped into that. And as clinicians, a lot of times, you know, we get very sidetracked by day-to-day life, and don't ask those questions that can really, you know, move the needle for a larger number of patients that we see. So, was the contact lens the first product that you developed, or, uh, or have there been other? Go ahead. I had
1: a long history of developing, actually, in a short length of time before then, um, mm-hmm. and I developed a technique of fitting PMMA lenses very, very early, which was lid attachment. Um, I developed the initial Polycon lenses. I didn't develop the material, Dr. Seiden did that, but I did develop it. Then, as I mentioned, I developed CSI. And uh, subsequently and simultaneously, uh, I developed a lot of contact lens solutions, including a suit XP, which is marketed currently by
0: Washington uh, right. Home,
1: and Sustained Balance, of course, which is marketed by Alcon.
0: So from your perspective, you know, why is research in MGD, you know, so imperative? What, what do you think, you know, is there more that we can do? Is there more that we can explore? You've laid such a strong foundation in terms of meibomia and gland dysfunction. You know, where do you see it sort of heading in the future? So it's sort of a two-fold question. What do you find to be so imperative about it, and what do you see as, as the next frontier?
1: Well, let's tackle the first part of why is it so imperative.
0: Right.
1: Uh, I don't know whether it's really understood, really clearly understood, that MGD is the leading cause of dry eye throughout the world. Do you think that's really understood?
0: That's a good question. Um, You know, I know know the statistics, you know, from the LIMP study, 86%, and then we see a bit more of a continuum uh, in the DEUCE-2 report. I think, you know, perhaps... Certain practitioners are aware, and sometimes we are academically aware of something, but you get into a clinical setting and you sort of set it aside and don't address it uh, as aggressively as it should be uh, taken care of.
1: yeah, I would say as i as I talk and and, and I try not to lecture too many times because it interferes <laughs> with my but but I would say that there is a growing understanding of it. Um, and it's probably just about now reached the threshold point of crossing over. So the majority of individuals who, who, who are interested in dry eye are beginning to really really believe that. They really are beginning right. to believe it. But have we ever thought about why they don't believe it?
0: That's a good and question. What's your,
1: what's your theory? Well, it's, it's very simple. It's very simple. All Mm -hmm. of the definitions of dry eye and everything that's taught by the academics teaches it's a tear deficiency. Right. So if you look at the the, uh, NEI definition, it says it's due to a lack of production of tears. If you look at the wonderful 2007 definition by DEWS 1, it says that it's a multifactorial uh, disease of the tears Characterized by, and it lists six symptoms. Mm-hmm. So we talk about symptoms. We talk about the lack of of, of aqueous on the eye, and mm-hmm. then we talk about all these uh, sequelae, such as osmolarity. Well, osmolarity is only a sequelae. Osmolarity isn't the cause of anything. Osmolarity mm-hmm. is the result of a root cause, which then has its own particular methodology for causing more mischief or causing more trouble. But all of these symptoms do. All of these symptoms do. But the symptoms are a manifestation of a root cause. And the root cause is what? The root cause is the fact that you don't have an adequate tear film. And the reason we don't have an adequate tear film is what? The reason we don't have an adequate tear film is because it evaporates. So science now tells us and the articles now tell us that 80, 90% of all uh, dry eyes is evaporative dry eye. Well, I would I would suggest that it's even higher. It's even higher right. than that. And yes, we have inflammation, but how else can the body respond? There's no other mechanism for it to respond other than, than one or more of the various forms of, of, of inflammation or immune response. Same thing, same thing. So I don't think that's really clear. I think it's very simple, uh, but I really, I, I really think that the field – uh, has been diverted, both mm-hmm. by both by academia, both by the authorities who define it, and lastly by the corporations who sell a product to
0: believing that it's nothing more than water. Right, right. And I think you're right. I think we're hitting a point where there's is a higher, probably the highest level of recognition for and gland dysfunction among. Uh, clinical optometry and ophthalmology. I think there is the greatest appreciation, though it's still probably well underdiagnosed and underappreciated in, in a, lot of, a lot of settings. And, you know, so you again that,
1: come back to the question of why is it imperative. Can, right. you have, can you have clear vision, really clear vision, without a good lipid layer? You can't. It's impossible. Right. Can you have good comfort? No, it's impossible. Can you have good contact lens wearing? No, it's impossible. Can you have great cataract surgery and great visual results, particularly if premium lenses will use? Impossible, absolutely impossible. So all of those areas, all of those areas really, 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 I mean, they're just so vital. So, of course, it's imperative. It has to be imperative. You hit it right on the head. It is Mm -hmm. imperative. And it's imperative Mm -hmm. because... My gland dysfunction with its sequelae result in unfavorable situations across the whole spectrum of vision care and surgical care. Right. And it's that simple, but it isn't recognized because we're still shackled. We're shackled (laughs) by the definitions that exist, by the tendency of individuals not to understand that you don't have to make anything complex. You know, philosophically, this is a great example of, of whom? Of Pavlov, when he said, you know, the simple can always be understood without the complex, but the complex can never be understood without the simple. And then his followers who went on to say, yes, that's why everybody wants to make everything complex. So we've we've made this dry eye so complex, and in fact, In my opinion, we don't even define it properly because I think it's this simple. I think that dry eye is that situation where the lids, the lids, mind you, and the tear film fail to adequately protect the ocular surface, resulting in sequelae and cascades. And I think that's the only definition that makes sense to me. But right that well, is, that isn't the definition that that's accepted, and that isn't the, that isn't the way we think. we don't want to think that way. we want to think in terms of tears, which are good, which are good, provided it doesn't lead us down the road to forget the cause for it all, and the cause for it all initially is m
0: g d so in my to, opinion. It, certainly and it's a, a valid and, and weighty opinion as well. So in terms of the frontier, what do you see happening next? You know, you've sort of laid the groundwork for how we came about recognizing the MGD, and now where are we going to go? What can we do more?
1: Well, I think the question is where should we go, not where will sure. we go. True, um, true. But understanding, let's say, where should we go. Um where I would should say I would say we have to change our thinking and we first has to have to accept the term desiccating stress. Because the primary problem we have now, in addition to obstruction, is one of its sequelae. And one of its sequelae is what? Ever since we've had great mybography, ever since uh, myself and everyone at Tear Science developed DMI, Dynamic Meibomian Imaging, we can really take a look at the glands reasonably well. Yeah, it's perfect. If we look at it 50 years from now with the same technology, yeah, it won't be perfect. Hopefully we'll have even better, but it's pretty good. So we can look at these meibomian glands now, and we can, and we can really begin to, to, to ask the question, do they exist? Have they atrophied? Are they there? And of course, what do we find out? We find out that a lot of the mybomian glands are lost, and we will have to pay tribute to the fact of an article which uh, we are now publishing. Dr. Mao here uh, with us uh, actually led this particular study, and uh, the the entire senior class, uh, the entire entering class at the New England College of Optometry was evaluated. To understand what their dry eye condition was, and not only what their dry eye condition was, but uh, but what the condition of their meibomian glands was and how that impacted, and how that impacted uh, their very, very being. And what was found mm-hmm. was that um, 17%, I think, if I recall correctly, of the entering class, of 81 students... There was about mm-hmm. 100 in the entering class, but 81 met all the criteria. Of the 81, I believe 17% had lost 50% or more of their mybomian glands.
0: 50%. Do you find that surprising?
1: Is it surprising? Yeah. No. no did it surprise you? Uh, I would have thought. I would have thought that. That yeah, 17% would have lost 30%, but I wouldn't have expected mm-hmm. 50%. But you don't know until you do a control study. You just don't know. Right. So 50%, and we've repeated this other in, in other uh, uh, in other situations with other populations who have the same type of stress placed upon them, and uh, it's mm-hmm. about this. So 17% have lost 50% or more of their glands. Forty uh, percent mm-hmm. could no longer wear contact lenses. The majority of them, I think, seventy percent of them, had significant dry eye symptoms. I think forty mm-hmm. to fifty percent of them use drops daily. This isn't all, all
0: within all within the seventeen percent with the large amount of dropout. No, no, right, right okay. across the board because seventeen percent,
1: with forty and fifty and sixty percent and seventy percent. Uh-huh. So. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, there was only 13% of the, of, the, of the 81 who had zero dropout, who had lost no mybromian glands, only 13%. Right. Um, so when you look at this, when, when you look at the magnitude of what we're facing, when you look at how the field has shifted completely with the leading cause of visits to most doctors' practices is a form of dry eye. Then, yeah, it is imperative. But what we have to understand in this is desiccating stress. And when you place desiccating stress on the cornea, you upregulate the entire system for a while until it wears out. And that causes all kinds of problems. Now, the classic paper in all of this comes out of Je- uh, uh, Jester's laboratory. Uh, out in California. And what Mm -hmm. Jester found um, is that when they took mice and they placed them in an environment with desiccating stress, excuse me, (coughs) where they placed them in an environment with desiccating stress, there was total loss of the meibolian glands in a period of time of the mouse's life, which corresponds to about six years of a human's life. And that seems to correlate remarkably well with what happens with humans. Five or six or seven or eight years after they start intense close work, particularly on a computer or with electronic devices, they begin to run into trouble, and we begin to see the dropout, as exemplified by the... Study at at, at the Winthrop College of Optometry's entering class, so right. it really is it really is a a a, uh, a very clear picture that we now have of why it's imperative to get at this, and more importantly than to treat it, to do what to prevent it, and we now right. understand more or less how to prevent it. How do we prevent it? We stop obstruction. How do we stop obstruction? We have to convert completely to a dental model. We can no longer be reactive. And as I've said for five years or more, we have to convert to a dental model. And the dental model is we see people periodically, and we evaluate whether or not their situation is stable or whether they're degrading. And if they're deteriorating, degrading, and they're losing glands, then we have to implement a program to do something about it and we now know what these programs are, and and we should be able to implement them. So I think it's a absolute necessity that we understand mybomian gland obstruction, we understand that that leads to desiccating stress, we understand the entire system of cascades that result, and we are treating the symptoms of the cascade. We are not treating the root causes. So that's analogous, really, to treating teeth and telling people they don't have to brush, they don't have to do anything, they don't have to floss, they don't have to goggle, just come in and see me every year and we'll clean you up and you'll be fine. Well, obviously that's absolutely ludicrous, but that's what (laughs) we're doing today, in my humble opinion. I don't know whether Mm. any of that makes sense to you or not, but I think it's really that...
0: You really you really draw a beautiful analogy that is translatable to not only our fellow doctors, but also to patients. So, you know, having the understanding of the dental model is is really universal at this point and should be very easily understood. You know, as we talked briefly about, or not so briefly, we talked about the imperative nature of treating myovigal gland dysfunction. You know, really, it comes from two different uh, pathways, either the treatment is imperative or the prevention is imperative. And I think your New England College of Optometry study is, is really, you know, focusing on prevention for future generations and your message and your passion that you're sharing with us is helping raise everyone's level of awareness in terms of treatment. I'd really like to thank you for joining us today, Dr. Korb, and we've really appreciated the insights that you've shared with us here today.
1: Um, I enjoy it. It was my pleasure, and I hope that your audience will understand it and will gradually proselytize for the purpose of improving the situation of those who who will have a very, very, very unhappy future due to the complexities of
0: dry eye. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. We again appreciate it.
1: Okay. Thank you.